0: Welcome to More to Come, P.W. Comic World's Weekly Podcast on Graphic Novel and Comics Publishing. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, uh, partially retired, but now a contributing editor to Publishers Weekly. Uh, and I continue uh, to, to do this dream job of talking to people um, on the podcast. I'm talking this week with Dave Chisholm, uh, the author of Miles Davis and the Search for the Sound, uh, a new graphic biography of really one of the greatest American musicians of the 20th century. Published by Z2 Comics, it's out this month. Dave, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Hey, Calvin. Thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Um, This, uh, this is an incredible achievement. I mean, look, uh, I'm a jazz obsessive. Our listeners, can't see right now that I got on a, a my Charlie Parker uh hoodie uh in in honor of this engagement but uh i i i got a chance to interview you uh on another platform about uh you know and I should say this this is one book among a many that you've done and including in particular uh, uh uh chasing the bird charlie parker in california i think was published in 2020 Yep. Uh, uh, I think to, to, I can a claim, certainly to PW's acclaim, we gave it a starred review, uh, graphic viral. Also, Enter the Blue, which is also, a uh, kind of a history of, of Blue Note Records. Uh, Instrumental, the book that I first kind of found out about you. Yeah. Uh, we have a science fiction graphic novel, uh, Canopus, if I'm saying that right.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that works.
0: Uh, I just to give people a little background, uh, yeah. But this book follows, uh, in my view, the, the Miles Davis graphic bio follows the incredible work you did on, on, on Chasing the Bird. Uh, it, it's a comprehensive look at his career that also, uh, seems to pierce, uh, his personality, his emotions. I mean, you get into it and you don't leave anything out. And, uh, and visually, uh, and I think I've talked with you about this a little bit before. Your ability, uh, to, to create scenes that embody these creators' lives, uh, and, and to kind of recreate music in a soundless medium, uh, is really, uh, inspiring. So that's enough of me. I, I get to go on at the beginning of these things a little bit. Uh, so tell us a little bit, you know, what, what well, first, what is Miles Davis? uh and the search for the sound what what is this book
1: yeah so um miles davis and the search for the sound is a kaleidoscopic poetic graphic novel biography of miles davis framed uh it's all framed through his the reco- his recovery from suffering a stroke in the early 1980s, towards the towards the last decade of his career, um, and um, in his recovery, he can't play trumpet. So he starts to draw. He starts to scribble in a book. A doctor tells him to start to scribble in a sketchbook, and in scribbling in the sketchbook, all of these memories flood back, uh, and they're all memories that are basically centered around his lifelong restless search. For the sound. For what was next. For the cool new thing. Or for a better frame. For his personal sound. And um, yeah. And it's 151 pages. And uh, I'm so stoked with how it turned out. I don't know. <laughs> well you know what. You should be. Um, you know
0: I, I gave my. Uh, kind of reaction to it early. J- just now. Um, but. You know, before I go, uh, even further into the book uh, with questions, I-, I think I always need to know a little bit about you. I-, I think I've described you in the past as a unicorn, or maybe a more flattering way would be to say, I mean, if there was anyone that sort of meant to do this book, uh, maybe it's you, uh, the combination of, uh, of, of, uh, academia, uh, of being an instrumentalist, a musician, a teacher, and a professional cartoonist of some great talent. Um okay. how, what would be the odds that, that someone would have all of these in one person and take <laughs> on this project? So then that's me windbagging again, but, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're a jazz trumpeter, you're, yeah. a, you're a doctorate in jazz trumpet, and you're a professor
1: of jazz, I take it. Yeah, yeah. Well, right now, honestly, like, the college classes I'm teaching at the moment are um, are more like comics related classes. Uh One of them is called Comics and Music, where we discuss like formalist interplay between the two. But I don't want to get too much into that. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about myself. Uh Yeah, um, I grew up in a really uh, supportive household where I was constantly surrounded by music, and I was constantly surrounded by comics. Um, the earliest music I ever remember hearing is sketches of Spain by Miles Davis. Um, -hmm. my dad spinning that record, uh, on the turntable when I was about three years old. And I distinctly remember the concerto and, um, and it leaving an impression on me. And basically like my whole life, uh, has comics have been an obsession of mine from through my whole life and music. Um, not too far behind. I started playing trumpet when I was 11. And I started taking it really seriously when I was in high school. Around that same time, I started, uh, I, I really became obsessed with me, really became obsessed with the music of Miles Davis and painted a lot of pictures of Miles Davis along with, you know, making comic books and on my own with my friends and stuff like that. I, um, I knew that I was going to go to school at the University of Utah, where I lived, because my mom worked there, and I got half tuition. Uh huh. Sure. I, I applied for scholarships from both the music department and the art department, and I got a bigger scholarship from the music department. So that kind of set my professional path in motion in academia. Uh, I finished my degree. I went on tour with a rock band for a couple of years, and that was really fun until it wasn't anymore. When that ended, I kind of dove back into making comics uh, in a big way. And I self-published a indie cult title called let's go to Utah that got a little bit of attention and it led to some professional work. What was that about? Uh, it's a road trip gone horribly wrong kind of story. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, um in that time I went back to school to get my master's degree. I moved out here to Rochester, New York, from Utah to get my doctorate at the Eastman school of Music and when I finished my doctorate I made the book instrumental which is a graphic novel with a soundtrack of music that goes with it and the soundtrack is really good also um, published by z2 comics that's right yeah yeah they which were is why I first encountered
0: your work that book and the soundtrack that goes with it
1: yeah and uh and definitely z2 was the first publisher courageous enough to take a chance on me, on my work. Mm. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, And then, you know, um, people seem to really like instrumental. And so I figured, hey, I'll make another graphic novel. I'll make another comic book. And then it kind of snowballed. And Z2 had a contract with some people who helped facilitate stuff for the Charlie Parker estate Mm. and, they approached me about doing the that graphic novel and i put everything i have into that book and it and it was met with um with a lot of like enthusiastic thumbs up from people which is great and then eventually that book found its hands in found its way into um miles davis's son's hands his son aaron davis mm. and the conversation sort of started Um, and Z2 approached me about doing a graphic novel, this graphic novel, Miles Davis and a search for the sound. And so, uh, and yeah, and like this book, I put, I put like everything I have into this book. I really, um, I wanted to make something that was a real, like deep, deep dive into like all of the contradictions that make up this, this guy, this guy, Miles. Right. Um, and I really wanted it to be focused on the music. Um, so often when con- when caught, con- like there are graphic novels about musicians or movies about musicians or documentaries about musicians, they, they talk about everything except for the music and they don't really, um, you know, and, and, and so I, and so I really wanted to make this and have the music of Miles Davis permeate The pages of this, even though, like you said earlier, comics are silent, right? Comics, you can't push play anywhere. There's no play button. And so I, um, my goal was to have like each chapter, you know, Miles Davis is really famous for having changed, be having the courage to change his style on a dime over and over again throughout his career and reinvent himself and constantly being reborn. Mm -hmm. So I wanted there to be tangible connections between his music of the his the music he was making during the time that I was depicting in any given chapter and the actual look of the chapter the in every aspect from colors to inking to mm-hmm. p- panel layout panel flow and storytelling style and stuff like that um so yeah like uh that was my big agenda for the book and thankfully everyone was on board with it and um it was like full speed ahead
0: can you compare it
1: to the to to the work
0: you did on chasing the bird. I mean, chasing the bird. You took these, in, in some ways, they're almost sacred texts. These there is a handful of accounts by people who knew Bird. I mean, for for those who don't know, Charlie Parker is the MBE's one of the greatest jazz. Players. What what was the what's the great Miles Davis line about what was jazz? And it was like Louis Armstrong, and Charlie Parker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you that's... sum it up in four words? I'm very, um, uh, Parker died, what was he, 34 or 35? Uh, yeah, he was really young,
1: mid thirties. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so, uh, but you have, you, your book was taking about, I forget how many, was it six or seven of these accounts? They're almost sacred texts and using that to kind of create this, you know, I mean, this 360 degree kind of view of this enigmatic genius figure. So, uh, the Miles Davis bio a little different, though you do use, uh, you do bring together some, you use your sources to get it, to get it to heart of this music, to, of this music, but also you do talk quite a bit about his life and, and his troubling
1: and not so troubled relationships with the people around him. Uh, the, 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 the all, everything with Miles was like, look for, From from my observations, everything with him still funneled back into the sound, right? Every relationship that he had impacted his sound. Every friendship that he had that was a deep, meaningful friendship impacted his sound, impacted the sound of his bands and everything like that, impacted the clothes he wore and everything. So he was like – he was this – I mean – Yes. How do you describe Miles in a in a single sentence? <laughs> but, to compare it to the Bird book, like the, like Charlie Parker was an enigma in a way that like Miles Davis isn't so much of an enigma because Miles lived a lot longer. Miles got a lot more famous in his lifetime, and there. So there there are like lots of interviews with Miles. There's a whole autobiography that he wrote. There's a lot of accounts of his life and from in his own words. And so with the Charlie Parker book where the issue was like the real kind of like core theme of the book was like trying to understand this person from a lot of different points of view with the miles book. It's like trying to like reconcile all of the contradictions about him from the inside out. Mm. So, using his own words throughout the book. The adaptations of his own words as like the narration through the book, even if it's at direct odds with his own actions over the course of his life. Um, and so in this book, like narrate, the narration features heavily, but I think it's, um, it, I, I want, I really wanted to take advantage of that great thing that comics can do where you can have two simultaneous threads of narrative and threads of thought happening one in the visuals and one in the narration and the text so that like and then and it really creates like three different storylines right you have the the storyline in the visuals the storyline in the narration and then the storyline that's created the way it, by the way those two things interact in real time on the page and um and yeah and i think uh it got pretty deep right it gets pretty <laughs> And and thankfully, um, everyone was okay with kind of like exploring some of the darker, um, aspects of Miles, not just like his own personal views, but like some of the things that he suffered too, like some of like the racial violence and, um, and, you know, some domestic kind of like, uh, generational trauma getting passed, passed down. Let me jump in for a second because, I
0: mean, you hit on an important topic and your book also, uh, I think, is, uh, face forward on this, uh, 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 both, um, um American racism, uh, and the complexities around race and jazz, uh, particularly as a white jazz musician. And you touch on this in his relationship with Bill Evans for our listeners who may not know Bill Evans. One of the great piano stylists in American musical history. I uh, was part of uh, Miles' bands, uh, some of his most famous bands. Um, uh, yeah, maybe just to bring this up only just to get your thoughts on it. Um, uh, how did how do you feel about that? I mean, you, you as a, as a white jazz musician uh, who I think has done some works about some of our greatest black musicians uh,
1: and done them really well. Well, you know, it um I think like it's obviously like um a kind of it's obviously like a like a socio political like minefield, right? And <laughs> yes. Be in this to be to be given this opportunity. And my biggest responsibility for these books is to not, not wreck, not screw it up. Right? Not fuck it up. <laughs> so like, it, so it's like, basically like I needed to do all my homework, all my research, really make sure that I'm like, like um, using sensitivity readers when appropriate. Um, and, you know, like, Making sure that like I'm getting details accurate and and not putting like too many words in people's mouths that um that aren't like don't belong there yeah um, oh that no yeah, uh, as I understand
0: it uh miles's dialogue in the book is taken
1: essentially from uh his his autobiography. Yeah, the, the narration is pulled from a variety of sources mm-hmm. in his autobiography, yeah. The dialogue is, some of it is, like, adapted from anecdotes about Miles from other people, and some of it is from anecdotes by Miles, and some of it is just me doing the thing that you have to do when you're writing, like, the, you're in that zone between nonfiction and historical fiction where you fill in the gaps and you mm-hmm. imagine the conversation would go... Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and so, so for, for me, it, it was like, uh, a lot of research. I mean, I knew I've I had already read multiple biographies about Miles Davis in my life, being a trumpet player, being like a Miles Davis, obsessive, obsessive. And like, um, so, so, so I I kind of knew like the overall structure that I wanted this story to be like right away. Um in a sense,
0: yeah
1: um I'll tell you, Calvin, my first draft of the book was two hundred and thirty pages and and so I had to edit down eighty pages of the book I had to wow. edit these out, and so my first draft of the book did not have a framing device it was just a biography, but this it's like what about hundred fifty pages now fifty one pages yeah, yeah, and so my my first draft, didn't have a framing device really. It had the, it had kind of a playful abstract framing device that wasn't really rooted in his life, but kind of just rooted in like his kind of, in kind of the narration, the first person narration. And um and then and then I was and then I I talked with my editor and he was like, hey man, we gotta edit it down. Like I think the most we can do is 150, 160 pages. Um, and I was like, all right, I I have to figure out what my frame is. And this was where the search for the sound, the the stroke recovery. I chatted with a friend of mine, Rick Quinn, who was like also a, a big Miles Davis fan and has read uh, Miles Davis biographies and stuff. And he and he suggested, well, what about that recovery from his stroke where he starts mm-hmm. to draw? And then it, it, it like came to me when he said that everything kind of was laid out. Yeah. Was laid in ahead of me, and I was like, "This is it. This this is going to be it." Because it gave me like um uh like I like to the metaphor. I like to think of it as like it gave me like the trunk of the tree, and and it let me know where I needed to prune all the branches of narrative in his life. Mm-hmm. It didn't really feed directly into that trunk of like sound and musical direction, in at least in some Broadway. Then it ended up on the cutting room floor, or if it was like redundant with other points that were made throughout the course of the of the story. But yeah. And then, and, and then, but with regards with to race, you know, like miles was a complicated guy. I think he was like super progressive. Let's put it this way. He was he come from a really progressive family about race. Like his father, he was from a middle-class family. I mean, he gets what's his father was a dentist, right? Dental surgeon and a, and mm-hmm. a successful pig farmer. And, oh. and I think they were, I would probably say they were a little bit, like wealthier than middle class yeah yeah uh, and and uh and his father had really progressive racial politics um and and uh and, and Miles inherited those and was very outspoken about race from a, from a, before anybody else before mm. a lot of people were he was outspoken about it um if we want to get like if we want to kind of analyze why he was that way i think i do think like he had a real safety net. Yeah. A lot of his risk taking and sort of like behave like music risk taking and otherwise I think stems from the fact that like he, he had a safety net at home. Right. Um, And, and at the same time, like, you know, I think miles was also like, like, you know, faced with the, the realities of, the, the, like, the shitty realities of being like a black man in America. Yeah. Especially back then, but really like, at any point in At America- any
0: point in American history. But yes. Uh, and you do much the same with Bird. And of course, cause he, they, they both faced, uh, the worst of American racist apartheid of the period. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, not to cut you off there, but I do want to, I, I do want to, I, I do want to, I, I do want to hear you talk about the development of your visual style uh, and to whatever way you, extent you can. Um, I mean, this book, much like the, the, the Charlie Parker book, has this combination of uh, your evocation of, you know, their daily lives, but also these pages that you put together that have this allegorical impact that often have to, that have to bring in multiple um multiple perspectives on a character but but all exist in either one one page or one panel and you do this over and over again um uh, uh as well as sort of purely documentarian style drawings and w- which what what immediately comes to mind is the meeting with Gil Evans you you'd want to talk about that passage a little bit
1: yeah. Yeah. I love that scene. That's like, um, I, I, I love the friendship between Gil Evans and Miles Davis. It's like, it's, um, in a lot of ways, what Miles says in his oh, book, let, let, let our listeners know who Gil Evans is just in case. Gil Evans, uh, Gil Evans was a composer, arranger, a white guy who was, a who was a few years older than Miles, maybe like, oh, maybe a decade older than Miles. And, um, <laughs> and they collaborated on some of the greatest music ever put out. Sketches of Spain, Miles Ahead, Porgy and Bess, Quiet Nights, uh, the Birth of the Cool sessions, and then mm. collaborating, like, unofficially to like, on, like, um, Fee de Kilimanjaro. Bill yes, yes. was there, a voice in Miles' head for his 1970s music. Um, and they were like, and, and Miles says in his autobiography that, Gil Evans was his best friend mm. and it was a, like lifelong friendship and their meat, like I'll call it like a meat cute, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a one. <laughs> Miles is, is, um, at the club and there's this tall white dude, like country bumpkin dude eating a bag of radishes. <laughs> yes. And he comes up to Miles and he's like, Hey, are you Miles Davis? And Miles is like, yeah. Who's asking and, and Gil Evans is like, well, I'm Gil Evans. And he, Miles wanted to, or Gil was wondering if he could write an arrangement of the song Donna Lee, which, um, which a, a great bebop anthem for those who don't know. <laughs> credited to Charlie Parker a lot, but, um, pro, more, most likely Miles Davis wrote it and Charlie Parker told Gil Evans, Hey, Miles Davis wrote that. So you need to ask him. And. And they connected with each other over kind of like sound and sort of like looking for a better frame for like Miles Davis's trumpet sound. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this conversation, we see them meet at the club and it's like darkly lit. And then they have this connection where they're both talking at the same time about looking for a new sound and the word sound, the two word balloons come together on the word sound and the And the whole panel is this blue-green color, and that blue-green color is like the sound, the the, the color that is reserved in the book for Miles Davis' trumpet sound. So like whenever Miles plays in the book, yeah. it's the color, and it's the only time in the book that that color shows up is when Miles plays his trumpet. Um, and so, you know, like I see comics as an opportunity to really like you said get allegorical, have visual metaphor, try to push it in as, as far as I can without losing the thread of like Mm -hmm. narrative without losing the thread of character and without losing the thread of narrative. Um, And in this book, the, that particularly shows up in the realm of the depiction of music in the book. So, do you want me to talk about that process? Well, of- yeah, but you
0: know, I just want to jump into so our listeners are following this clearly that what the, the, the page you're talking about, there, there are two pages in, in particular that's, that are on my mind. Uh, one page is, uh, after, after their encounter at the club, Gil, I think tells them to, hey, come to my apartment. Um, uh, and, and I think this is a, the, the book is also full of a, a lot of historical markers, I think that, that ground us. Uh, you know, when I first started going to New York to listen to jazz when I was a college student in the 1970s, the jazz scene was located downtown. Right. But there was a time when you hear people talk about 52nd Street and Swing Street, the jazz, the jazz ground zero was more midtown. Right. There were, the clubs were there. I guess the musicians must have lived around there in that time. I guess there were these um uh boarding rooms as well as hotels. An yeah. But then across the page from the, there's on this one page, uh, it's like this incredible diagram of an imaginary scene of who would be at these sessions, uh, uh, these early sessions of the bebop, this great revolutionary new uh, interpretation of black music. And across the page, there's this incredibly, uh, beautiful scene of Miles with this Diaphanous blue permeating the room.
1: Yeah. And if
0: there, I can't imagine a better visual cue that Miles Davis was on the scene. Uh, and also I want you to talk about how Miles looks. You, 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 your style is, is a combination of very a cartoony precision. <laughs> Because your, 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 your drawings are cartoonish, but they're very, they have weight and substance at the same time. And it's interesting how you do that, particularly Miles, who is both incredibly beautiful in one minute and can be dark and seemingly almost evil in another and stylish the whole time. Okay. I've talked too much because this book is really inspiring to me, but what can you tell us about those two panels and what they meant
1: and drawing? Them? Yeah, so the the panel of at Gil Evans's apartment was very fun. Uh, yes, it's it's great. It's it's one of those things that like, like, the way Gil Evans would just leave his apartment unlocked and people could just show up at any time and like hang out, and it was like a one bedroom apartment with a piano in it, and a cat like yes, <laughs> and Becky and that lived there. Birds and, in bed in your drawing. He's like. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean whatever. <laughs> That's I, I uh and, and so like all of the names in that are from I think an account by oh I think Jerry Mulligan. It could be a combination of like Miles Davis listing the people who might be there, but also like maybe Lee Konitz or Jerry Mulligan listing the people yeah. who might be at Gills. And um it's a real who's who, Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, yeah. Larry, uh John Lewis, um, a real, I mean, a pretty, like, amazing group of geniuses, like, in one place, you know. Uh, Jerry Mulligan, as you mentioned, uh I mean, you know. And it's, it's like the late night, I imagine, like, these late night conversations at Gail's apartment is probably where, like, the birth of the cool, the ideas really, like, sort of took root. Um, and so, you know, like in comics fashion, I get like three panels to like communicate all of this, like probably months of conversations. You have to be a poet about it. And so you have these three panels where like Gil Evans and Miles and Jerry Mulligan are like crowded around the piano, kind of talking about what's the right instrumentation to like get the sound. And they decide on a non like a nine piece group. Mm -hmm. Next page, we see the non performing at, um... Is it the Royal Roost? Is that right? I can't remember.
0: Yeah, I, that might, yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
1: actually, that's a good question.
0: I'm not quite sure where those, uh, where, what now, the, the, the bird for those who don't know, the birth of the oh, cool, was, yeah, yes, there it is. I mean, oh. the rest of the cool were, were, was a sort of a paradigm shifting set, uh, series of albums by what the Claude Thornhill, uh, band, uh, that was bop arranged. Um, in an incredibly lyrical, I mean, right. for those who haven't really listened to Raw Charlie Parker, like if you can get air checks, what, those Royal Roost air checks, where you hear Bird and, uh, and Miles and so many of the great Jasmine playing this wild, unfettered bop of the period, these live sessions, uh, Birth of the Cool was a little different.
1: Right, right. And you know, like, um at the time, they weren't really thinking about it like that. But yeah, t- <laughs> no, I know that's me mean, looking back and <laughs> like marketing, you know, to to try to sell it in the way that, like, in a way that was sort of like, um even though Miles Davis was is what was a black man, it was trying to appeal to white audiences because to white audiences, like, quote unquote, hot jazz was like black yeah. and. Jazz was white, even though the in the actual performing of it the lines are a bit more fuzzy. Sure. It, in terms of marketing, uh like Miles himself himself even says like this was just a bit softer, taking the hard edges of Bebop, the kind of like inside joke, inside information of Bebop, sort of like this sort of uh black genius inside like language, and kind of cracking it open a little bit for like the general public to like partake in is how he, I mean, he doesn't use those exact words, but he says yeah. something akin to that, um, in his book. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, it's, it's definitely some of, some of my favorite music. Um, although not my very favorite Miles Davis music, it's definitely some, some cool stuff. And I think it's cool because you, it's the first kind of, it's the first collaboration between Miles and Gil. Um, and it's hard for me to really s- s- pick one, but i would say that the miles and gill stuff is is right up there for me it's like yeah. top it's like my favorite it's it's probably like my some of my favorite music ever put ever recorded i ever would, i would agree with you
0: but how 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 did you what can you tell us about about uh getting a visual representation of
1: miles in yeah. particular Man, it just took a, it just took a little bit of practice, I think. Uh, I know that that's maybe a bit trite to say, but I think like, I didn't want to have to look at a photo for every panel, right? Mm. And like, to be quite honest with you, Calvin, most photos of Miles Davis have Getty images put on that, on them, right? And right, Getty, i right. a notoriously litigious organization. And so like, I, so I it was sort of like well I can't really use I can't really just pull willy nilly like and just like light box a photo of Miles Davis like yeah. for or like use the projector to like project it onto the paper to the board and draw it so I had to develop like a confident visual shorthand mm-hmm. like, like you said it's cartooning right um, of like that would be like a, a likeness of this person and and a sort of like a likeness that could be like flexible enough to yes. like put in different, all of these different visual styles. Some are more realistic and some are more, like you said, a little more cartoony, mm-hmm. but that like,
0: and to convey his emotional state. Uh, you, I mean, you're able to do that too with this image. And so like
1: for miles, you know, like he, uh, it's all in his eyes and his cheekbones. And he has like a, I mean, it's, he's just like, he's a, like a real, like a wide, a wide forehead, you know. Yes, yes, yes. In his career, he, what do you call it? He he treated his hair so that his hair he was conk, <laughs> also it. known as a process. Process. That's yeah. And so, like, uh and then I think pretty much like not pretty much like after he um, recovered from withdrawals from heroin addiction, he, I think at that point he had like natural. Yeah, he's after that. I think um, so,
0: yeah. It's interesting because I mean, like so many uh I mean that was the period, uh, you know, processing your hair. Uh I mean, you know, that's where the do rag came from. Um <laughs> for those who may not be familiar with with uh the cultural aspects of black life in those years. Um but once again, you you know, you you bring Miles through period. I mean, this man was really the coolest. Man walking the earth, besides being, uh, maybe the greatest musician. Um, uh, I, you know, there's so much to ask you. I'm like, I get, I get, get, I get, <laughs> I get a little scattered, but, um, uh, but you do it and you bring it together and, and visually and so amazing throughout this book. And since you brought it up, uh, and this is a key element as well, uh, in the lives of, uh, unfortunately almost every musician in this period their relationship to drugs and uh the degradation that many of them coupled with uh racial bigotry um i mean some people would put the racial bil- uh, bigotry as a driving force behind so much addiction but miles had to had to kick too he, he was luckier than many of them he he managed to do it up to a point
1: yeah up to a point i think that um in a weird way um his his ability to kick the habit in the mid 50s in a weird way gave him like more confidence than he should have had to experiment with stuff later on and kind of relapse a little yeah. bit later on um cuz he thought like hey i can kick this stuff it's not a big deal i've kicked it once so i can kick it again i mean and uh and i think like you know it's it it does get pretty dark him, in there it's it's um again it was one of those things where it's like trying to be um communicate communicating this these aspects of his life in a way that's truthful without being exploitative um i mean it's a it's it's tough but it's important it's an important part part of who he was i mean i think it's in a lot of ways like for for um for Charlie Parker, who suffer, who suffered from who really like I think it, in a lot of ways his addiction took his life. Really, his oh, like
0: yeah. yeah, It
1: was it really seems to have been all about like escaping the to- torment of his own mind and the torment of like racial injustice in America, right? Because mm. um, he had this he it, for all intents and purposes Charlie Parker had a mind that just would not stop, mm. would not. And he was such a genius and such a brilliant guy. And if he had had better coping skills and better tools and a more supportive system set up to help him out, like he would, I mean, he would have been like a genius. I mean, he was a genius. He would have been like a world recognized genius, like by at a really young age, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Man. And with miles, I think it's, um, I think that it was a little bit different. I think that his relationship with this stuff is a little bit different than what it was with Charlie Parker. Well, there's anything,
0: cause, I mean, Bert, Bert obviously was a kind of genius, an underground genius. I mean, the musicians all knew it and certainly fans knew he was a genius. But, uh, but Miles reached a level, uh, where he became a cultural icon. Yeah. Yeah. For he sure. was, he was on, I mean, he hit a level that I guess we more could compare to Louis Armstrong, who oh, totally. was like the king of pop. I mean, of the period. I mean, he was a mega superstar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his contract with Columbia was a very, very lucrative contract, and you
0: know? and he was seen around the world. He played in Europe. He toured everywhere. His, I mean, it was in some ways almost a last hurrah for mm-hmm. jazz as a major mm-hmm. popular mm-hmm. expression and serious concert music at the same
1: time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean he was uh I mean like really like even to this day it, his name has more cultural weight than any jazz musician oh like yeah period uh, the album kind of blue
0: uh is probably the best known album in the world if people who don't never have listened to uh, any other jazz album yeah no yeah. kind of blue which is amazing because it's a beautiful music to listen to. And it's, it changed the course of jazz improvisation as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really catalyzed a lot of ideas that had been bouncing around in the, in like the scene at that time. Like it really catalyzed it and packaged it in a way that was compelling. It had an amazing vibe. Like it was the kind of exactly the record that needed to happen for like these ideas to become like, Globally influential, you know.
0: And one other thing about your book also is you take us through all of his bands, too. And I, well, one other thing I want to point out, I mean, you, you talk about how you edited it down, which I think is amazing. Because I, you seem to cover almost every major point in both the Miles mythology and in his actual life and uh and and, in, and at no point do i feel like you're giving it short shrift you, uh, you you seem to be able to do it and you and you seem to touch on the as you were saying you touch on the real world and the emotional uh churn that was going on at the time whether we're talking about sketches of spain uh you know and around that what the original composer didn't uh, what he didn't really like the the version until he got get royalty checks <laughs> um uh, uh let's look. what are, I mean, I, I've got so many things here I don't know where to, what to ask you ask you next uh tell us a little bit about okay what miles was supposed to go to
1: fisk, but he did't oh well, I mean I mean like it's wild i mean it's it's um his his mom wanted him to go to fisk university. Um, but Miles had such a kind of bad relationship with his mom that like basically anything that she said, he would be like, no, I'm not going to no, do that. And he was, um, he was like pretty, at that point he had like sat in with with Billy Eckstein's, Eckstein's band. And, and um, when they played in East St. Louis, which is where Miles Davis was mm-hmm. from, and um and he heard Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie for the first time in East St Louis at that gig, and he and at that point he was like, "That's it, I'm going to New York and I'm going to play with Charlie Parker. I'm going to do this." And um, though he enrolled so, at Juilliard, if he, he, rolled, right. he he was there a year and a half, you know, which is longer than he makes it sound like he was there. Right, and his yeah. uh, his own recollection makes it seem like he was just there for like a drink of water. But a year and a half is a pretty long time to be in school. Um and he dropped out to play with um to play with Charlie Parker. He uh I think that he um when he talks about it in his book, he at the time Ju- Juilliard like jazz education was not a thing in academia. And he's like in he says it in his book like there's no principal trumpet player in an orchestra back then who looked like me. So I'm mm. like what are doing here um, yeah. I think
0: we could probably have a separate conversation about the, the state of comics education in higher education I, I imagine it was very different when you were younger than it is now
1: yeah that's true
0: man that's true <laughs> but look I want to take another point since you brought up his mother one of the things your book does and also once again uh and I think you do incredibly well visually is his role the women in his life there were many uh it is, isn't always a pretty story uh you know he could be a violent uh and and disrespectful dude uh and you don't shy away from any of this in the book
1: yeah well i mean i figure like M- miles davis in his own recollection is um like unnervingly candid himself mm-hmm. he's he is very forthright about his own kind of like failings in in this aspect of his life and so, um, I think that how do I put this? Look in a book like that will that will note without doubt fail the Bechtel test, right? This book fails the Bechtel test. It's narrated by Miles Davis. It's entirely from his point of view. Like, mm-hmm. there's no, and and it's entirely from the point of view of a guy who like. You could maybe say is pretty self centered, right? He's pretty like a little. (laughs) You think? (laughs) um, And I, but at the same time, I still was like, I still wanted it. Well, not that it. These women in his life are so important. There's, it's, there's, they're, they're, um, more than just like stepping stones. They're whole people that like he kind of like didn't like you said like they don't get. He does not treat he didn't treat the women in his life with the respect that they deserved. Right. Um, and, um, I wanted to make sure that like those women were as fleshed out of characters as I had space for, as I had time for, as I had room for. And at the same time to kind of like use the limitation, space limitations to kind of like show that like this guy's, this guy is, is, really thinking about the sound, about his music, about himself, about his art, bef- really before he's, he's giving the proper consideration to the romantic relationships in his life. Um, and so it kind of worked that way. Uh, and then there's this big confrontation that did yeah. it been in the, in the mid seventies that shortly preceded his like, um, five year long silent period where he like basically was a hermit. Um, for like from seventy five to like nineteen eighty or like seventy nine and eighty um and this big conversation- co- uh confrontation between him and an ex um that happened backstage at a hometown concert and um that was i was that irene his
0: first wife yeah 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 yeah, and, and, and like, just let me mention it just some of the women's life I, I Irene was his first wife, and I think had a kid with him yeah. uh, Taylor
1: actually you know what? actually just to be clear, yeah. He and Irene never are married. They were never, okay. They had kids. So, um, Gre uh, um, Miles, Ju- Miles the Fourth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Cheryl and, um, and Gregory are all children with that and with, um, mm-hmm. Irene. And then, and so, and then Francis Taylor. And yeah, yes, who appeared on some of his
0: album covers, if I'm not mistaken. But there's Cicely Tyson, uh, yeah. Betty Mabry, and that, all of these all of these women show up uh throughout yeah. uh, as you chronicle his life and i just wanted to make sure that we uh uh you know i mean I, this is a strong part of the book because it you don't really shy away from uh other aspects of miles that is there aren't you know
1: as yeah. a well you know like like i said like i think he's someone who um who who wasn't great at um compartmentalizing his life right so when i say that like it's about the music it's about his search for the sound it really is but all of these things factor into all of the people he he had relationships relationships with factor into the sound like his short friendship with Jimi hendrix factored into his sound in a major way his friendship with like um this is late in his life in the 70s yeah, his friendship with uh yeah, like his friendship with Bill Evans factor, factors into his taste moving forward. He mm. was really like for for. Ahmad Jamal is very famous. Totally, for, and for as like for as much as Miles kind of seems like and 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 projects this real like tough guy image, which kind of brings with it I I am I think a certain amount of expected stubbornness. He was really like an open kind of like. Vessel for like new ideas from other people. He was never like, he w- if, if Wayne Shorter and Tony would, were like, we want to do the free thing. We want to do free. We want to, we want to be more free. He was like a yes and, you know, he was always
0: that, Tony Williams, the drummer and Wayne Shorter, the great saxophonist. Um, I, I just want, I'm, I have to drop these d- descriptors in there just to make sure, uh, there are audiences following us because I mean, you, you're, you're, you're I mean, this takes us back to what I found also wonderful about your book as as a doc as a document uh how you go through his bands i mean he had what was it three great quintets I mean, I would say so, yeah, uh yeah, uh, you know starting with train uh Train and her uh cannonball adderley right wayne shorter uh mm-hmm. yeah, I, and, the and last I, great one, I could be wrong, George Colvin is in there somewhere yeah <laughs>
1: I think I'm going to nerd sax bonus. Uh, yeah, so the first one is um is the quintet with like uh Philly Joe Jones, Paul Tj yeah. Red Garland, Steeman, Relaxin. And then I would say this uh the second one there's the sextet, right, which which oh, has the right. All- and then there's the second great quintet is with Ron Carter, Tony Williams, Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. And then I think the third one is with, uh, Jack DeJanet, Dave Holland, and, um, Chick Korea, and then with Wayne Shorter also on saxophone, mm-hmm. and that one never recorded a proper studio album. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. There are a couple tracks with that group on it on, um, the transitional record Fee De Kilimanjaro. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it doesn't really reach the crazy, Insane heights that that group could reach in performance that you get if you could find some of the bootleg live performances and stuff like that. Um, like total.
0: I'm jumping in again because we're, the the time is winding down and, and I, I, and I, I want to kind of, I want to segue into the, to the seventies at the end of his life. Uh, you know, as a jazz obsessive and miles obsessive myself, uh, you know, I, I, I followed miles. Up until about On the Corner. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not proud of this. I, I love Miles. I love his music. I listen to it to, to this day. Uh, I, 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 I love Bitches Brew and On the Corner. I'm not On the Corner and in a silent way. Uh, but, but yeah, On the Corner kind of lost me. So what's your take on Miles in the 70s and yet your drawings? And I should say people, the drawings of the bands, uh, and once again, the recreation of a sense of sound visually are not to be missed in this book. But what can you tell us about
1: Miles in the seventies? Tell you, man, one of my first real like Miles Davis loves was the album Live Evil, which is, which came out wow. like shortly after Bitches Brew. And it's like the first album that really heavily features Miles Davis playing his trumpet through a guitar amplifier with a yeah. wall pedal. Mm. And, and that album, like has Keith Jarrett on electric piano before he was like really famous. Mm-hmm. Like this crazy like oil and water kind of thing with like Keith Jarrett like kind of pushing things out and then the rhythm section like pushing things in like Michael Henderson. Mm-hmm. Really the first like musician in Miles's regular band who wasn't a jazz musician. He 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 was an R&B bass player. He he mm-hmm. was Miles poached him out of Stevie Wonder's band, right? This is before what McLaughlin? Yeah, yeah right, right around that era. And, yeah. and Michael Henderson, when Miles hired him, Miles said, "Like, if you learn any of my old songs, I'll fire you." <laughs> and so, like, um, and so, and he wouldn't rehearse either. The
0: you, you these the book the, right. the musicians are asking him, like, "Hey, can we rehearse this?" And he's
1: like, "No." And <laughs> like that album is really cool. The the um, live sets that those that album is edited from is amazing i adore the record a tribute to jack johnson yeah Mm -hmm. or album uh and then like on the corner to me is like a super like prophetic kind of like like frankenstein's monster edited together like pre-hip-hop kind of like it's a hundred percent groove. It's like no solos really to speak of. It's just like a heavy groove the whole time. And then like uh, get up with it is like trance music. It's like, it's like meditative trance music that track. He loved him madly. Like you just want to sit and like light some incense and like sit and just, and just like be like, you have to listen to it in the same way that you watch a movie like, uh, what's that one Koyo Natsuki? that, or that one that one movie that's like where it's just like only music and like visuals from around the world. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah. It's a word. It's like a, um, anyway, anyway, I, um, it's just a different mindset. And then like, I love the band with Pete Cozy on guitar. Mm-hmm. Last band that he had Al Foster on drums. It's just like, and that band to me is like, just like, like, uh super heavy dance music, like, from beginning to end of the set. So, like, the sets would unfold, like, one continuous song, and it was, like, the heaviest, heaviest grooves for, like, 45 minutes straight. Like, um, super heavy. And then, like, he retired, and he comes back in the 80s and kind of continued some of those ideas early in the 80s and then became kind of, like, took on this, like, um, the trappings of like 1980s, likes pop music with with mm. like his covers of "Time After Time" by Cyndi Lauper and "Human Nature," the song made famous by um, Michael Jackson. And I mean, very quickly.
0: Now, uh, excuse me for interrupting you, but because I'm running out of time, and I want to ask you one more question: Did you, by any chance, did you see Don Cheadle's "Miles Ahead"? I watched it's it. A after... Unusual biopic I have ever seen.
1: Yeah, I I kinda watched it um like after I had finished the script for the this book. I didn't wanna uh-huh. or um yeah, I watched it uh you know, like <laughs> I feel bad because I feel like if Don Cheadle had gotten to make the movie that he wanted to make, apparently, um it would have been awesome. But that was the movie he wanted to make, no? I heard that the studios kind of insisted on having the storyline with the fictional white journalist as like a. Oh, as, cause they, they yeah, I guess they thought it would help the audience. Yeah. To kind of like give the I audience. The actor was that they chose. McGregor. Yeah. yeah. And to give the audience like a path in, that's what I heard. I think that, that Don Cheadle did, gave an amazing performance. I feel, but I feel like, there, there's no real need to, to like... The guy's life was so interesting, so dramatic, so eventful. And America was so interesting and dramatic and eventful during, like, the 50s, 60s, and 70s that there's there was no real reason to fully fabricate this storyline about, tape, like, rehearsal tapes and this other trumpet player and all that stuff. There were some really nice scenes. I thought the scene with the boxing match was really poetic where, like, the music becomes like part of the boxing match and stuff. And um, and the scenes of, of of historical there there were some there were some
0: um flashback scenes of Miles like say in the 40s and it was they were beautifully shot, I thought.
1: Yeah, but you know like I think um you know the the My, it's easy to look at Miles's relationship with Francis and say like well this was the relationship but like I I'm not totally sure that. I think maybe like, it's sort of like oversimplified the importance of that at the mm-hmm. cost of all the other relationships that he had that were also really important that don't even really get mentioned in the book or in the in that film.
0: Okay. You know what, well, man?
1: I yeah. still appreciated it. It was still pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I, I did, that was just a curious question. I want I, I want to bring this back to the book as we as we head out um uh i i i look I, as you as you could and as our listeners can probably tell uh i'm i'm i was really blown away by the book uh i i what have you been hearing from it and as we go out now any any last thoughts anything i i didn't ask you that maybe you you want people to to, to think about
1: or to look for when they get your book oh man well i think the only thing is i just i really hope that People who um who who aren't fans of jazz don't know Miles Davis's music don't like I hope those people understand that this book is an open door. It's a great primer on learning this guy's music from zero from nothing. Right, Mm -hmm. you have to know. It's in like I try really really hard to make my books so that they're accessible by total novices, but they're also something that would be loved by. By like hardcore diehard fans. And so th- this book really is for everybody, except for probably really young readers, because there's yeah. a lot of, of cuss yeah. in the book and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> um, and I will say that that you know, what's amazing is that I mean, if you're a more sophisticated musical listener, a a musician, or I'd say have some understanding of musical theory, um, there's something there for you there in this book too, but it it is by no means a book that's just for musicians. It's for, uh, anyone interested in, in the extraordinary personality and art of Miles Dewey Davis. So thank you, man, for, for you, you, you really laid down something, uh, I think is really important. Uh, Calvin, thanks, man. This- comics for American culture, for music you
1: know i that's that's a lot to put on you but there you go well, like i was saying before we uh before we started recording like this book feels in a weird way like culminative culminative for me in a, in a way to kind of like get my earliest like musical obsessions like wrapped up in like this medium that's so important and so crucial to me uh and to sort of like finish this like four book run of like jazz related books about obsessed people right yeah. really- Less <laughs> people. It feels like it feels like now that I can turn the page and like do something fresh and new. That's like I'm. I'm. It feels really like like man. I'm really proud of it. I'm really happy about it. All right. Well, you earned it. And then when you get those done,
0: we'll come back and interview you again. So, hey, everybody. Uh, Dave Chisholm. The book is uh Miles Davis and the Search for the Sound. Dave, thank you so much for being on. More to come.
1: Thanks for having me, Calvin.